Thank you, Julianne, Peter, the band. It's great to see you all here. Gee, it's so nice to see faces. Wow. I can see. I, I just feel like standing here for a while, just enjoying the vibe of seeing faces and more people in our church service. Uh, could I actually ask you, uh, over many months, we've had many people serving from outside doing temperature checks to welcomers, etc. Could you just thank them all? Just let's do that today. Thank you. That'd be good. It's such a good thing to do. Uh, I know you're wondering about the future. Rhonda and I always wonder about the future. Let me just say right now, especially to those who are at home, it certainly would be my goal, and the team are thinking about this, in the next, say, four weeks, we're certainly going to rethink gathering, more services, what that looks like. That'll involve rethinking through rosters and training and equipping people and all those things. So I hope you pray for that as we seek to move into, hopefully, prayerfully, uh, a new season before something called Christmas, which is just around the corner. Uh, and Josh, can I just say to you, uh, through our community story, mate, that was very powerful. And we are richly blessed that you're part of our congregation. So may it be that we continue to encourage you in your journey of faith as well. Today, I want to talk about how we make the most of God's grace, because I love the story that Julianne read. I wonder how many of you, I know, I love movies and we've only, Rhonda and I've only seen one in the last, gee, six months, I think. It was actually called Antebellum, if you haven't seen it. Uh, it's very powerful. But probably in my top 20 movies is a movie called Patch Adams. It, it came out about 1998. Uh, 98 was a significant year in the life of victory. That's another story. Uh, and there's a particular scene, it, it's really funny or sad to go back and watch it because both Philip Seymour Hoffman and Robin Williams, of course, have passed away. Both incredible actors. But there's a scene in the movie where Robin Williams bursts into uh, the office where Philip Seymour is. They're both training to be doctors. Uh, and Robin Williams is really quite angry because Philip Seymour Hoffman in the movie has actually accused him of cheating through his exams. And as it unfolds, what becomes really clear is that uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman has actually come through a long line of people who are doctors. And there's this great sense, of course, that it's just not fair in the movie that Robin Williams has come later and is doing so well where Philip Seymour Hoffman is one of those guys who has to study and study and study and work hard to get where he is. And he's so angry because it's not fair. And there's no doubt as you hear that story read from Matthew 20, and I do hope you've got your Bibles open and your iPhones there, there's a great sense for us in our culture where as we live our life, often we look at others or compare ourselves with others and we think it's just not fair. It's just not right. Uh, maybe those going through the HSE could relate to that with those in their own class. Some who just seem to, maybe the word cruise through without studying hard and get extraordinary marks. And others who slave away and study and study and just, just get there. Uh, for us today, we want to understand how does God's grace work? This is important for us today, but it's something for us for the future, for the church of fig tree. Not just now, but you've got to keep coming back to it. Uh, the laborers in this story, of course, and there's many of them, there's a sense of, oh, it's just not right. And we have to have our lives lived with a sense of perspective about how God works. 
I hope many of you might remember that our mission as a church at this point in time is to build a community of grace committed to making disciples of Jesus. And we are called to hold firmly to that. And maybe, maybe sometimes when you hear that passage and you can get to verse 15, and maybe that's a bit of a link because the landowner in that story raises that question and says, well, are you envious because I'm generous? And that can rattle us sometimes. So let me pray as we jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Father, may it be that we really do appreciate what we have and may our calling be one of grace with grateful hearts and that as we serve, we don't have in our mind what we get but what we give. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We are called to run this life well but not to run blind because if you run blind without assistance you will run into walls and hit walls and there's a problem with that and you'll see that uh, in Matthew 19 to help us get to Matthew 20 and many of us might of course uh, remember those famous words from Ephesians 2 verse 8 it is by grace you've been saved not because of anything you've done remember the words it is a gift of God This passage, can I just rule it out right away? It's not about salvation. That's not what is on focus here. And yet with any parable that Jesus teaches us, as we see in Matthew 20, there's a reason why he says what he says. And there's a context. You need to run well, not run blind, but understand the context around it. And the context of Matthew 20 comes from Matthew 19. Uh, Let me just read to you Matthew 19 verse 16. You probably know the story well. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And the young man, of course, says, which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, not commit adultery, not steal. Not give false testimony, honour your father and mother and love your neighbour as yourself. And of course the young man's Bible, he says in verse 20, uh, all these I've kept the young man said, what do I still lack? And of course, oh, Jesus says those words, it's rattled many of us. If you want to be perfect, go and, you remember it, go and sell everything. Go and sell your possessions and give it to the poor. I wonder how that went down. And you'll have treasure in heaven then come follow me and of course the young man verse 22 he heard this he went away heartbroken sad because why because he had great wealth Uh, so the rich young ruler in that scenario in Matthew uh, 19 could not give up that very thing that he held on to indeed probably that he worshipped and of course it seems like he's kept all the commandments of of course except that great one about not serving any other gods Exodus 20 verse 3 His wealth had become an idol. So don't hear me say to follow Jesus, you have to sell everything you have. It doesn't say that. It's about priorities. And so Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 23 and says, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go, what, through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God language is there. You'll see the kingdom of God language and kingdom of heaven language again and again in Matthew's gospel. Of course, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. 
and asked, who then can be saved? And of course, Jesus responds, as we know, look, with man it's impossible, but, Kizong, all things are possible with God. Uh, so they're hearing this. And of course, dear Peter, and we get to Peter again and again uh, in Matthew's Gospel. You see it in Matthew 16. You see it throughout Matthew's Gospel. And it's like maybe we could create a TV show, a reality TV show called Leave It to Peter. For those who are old enough to remember, Leave It to Beaver. But I don't think I was born then, but anyhow. So Peter answered him, verse 27, Well, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Interesting reflection. Jesus said to them, I truly I tell you at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, children or fields for my sake will receive what? A hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. And then you see this key link at the end of 19, as we head into verse, in chapter 20, but of course what you read at verse 30, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And so there's the context before Jesus jumps in to tell, to emphasise what he's already addressed with Peter and the disciples. Now, it's, it's a genuine question, and I think often we have that question in our lives, and you might be sitting here thinking, imagine if a minister decides to retire after three decades of ministry, and he's thinking, great, what do I get now? I've left everything to serve you, Lord. And you're thinking, no, no minister of the gospel would ever say that. No Christian would ever say that or think that. You've got to be kidding. Aren't you and I waiting for our watch from Australia Post right now? As a retirement gift, I think I deserve one. A cardio watch I think would look good on my arm. I can picture it now. For those watching in other parts of the world, maybe you don't get that's a local joke. But I know, like many of you know, the sacrifices one makes in life and indeed in ministry and in other parts, whether it be working as a school teacher, etc. There's a moment in time that's absolutely richly ingrained in my life. Uh, it was January 2004, Rhonda, myself, Emma, and our dog, our beagle, Misty, uh, we're leaving Shell Harbour and heading off to Sydney to Castle Hill. We'd made the decision to take on a new job. We were leaving our two sons behind, Luke and James, who were going to have to live together uh, and rent together in a townhouse. They're in their early 20s. And the truck had gone. And we're in the car. My sons are standing on the driveway. And we're in the car, Rhonda, me, Emma and Misty. And at that moment in time my world fell apart. I was, I was incredibly broken. And I've got to say to you, I've been in moments where I've been broken before. But I've, nothing in my life of over 60 years has ever come close to that moment. I could not stop crying. It triggered Rhonda to cry, triggered Emma to cry. Probably the Beagle started crying, I think, at that point. I felt, I felt awful. I felt like the worst person in the world and I felt like, surely God, the cost of serving you doesn't mean I leave my sons behind. And you're thinking, look, they're 20s. I know. Fathers are weird, just in case you're wondering. 
It was just devastating because they weren't coming with us. And so it doesn't take much to think about the sleepless nights, the things you put up with, the barbs, the knives and all those things. You think, well, where's the reward? So I can relate to Peter. I'm sure many of you can relate to Peter. Uh, and Peter's question, uh, you know, it's a good question because it leads to Jesus emphasising, well, here's how kingdom values work. Here's how they work, Peter and Ian and all those who are listening. Uh, and you've got to understand that. And, and Peter's question, as I said, isn't about salvation. And there is a sense of reward, so don't deny that, in that story and in eternal life in heaven. But it also highlights the simple fact and a warning that God will not distribute rewards or grace as we expect, based on what we do. Uh, this verse from 30, many who, are first, many who are first will be last and last will be first. You've got to understand, in the kingdom of God, your position in this life, your social status, your affluence, in no way moves you towards that's going to be the same in eternal life. Those who probably have least might even be closer to God. And so Jesus tells this story to illustrate his point about the first being last and last being first. And it doesn't surprise you, if you which I've done as you've done, if you read through Matthew's Gospel and you know where Jesus is going to go and you know how anxious he is and how annoyed he is with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that he might even have in his mind at this point in time, you know, tax collectors, prostitutes, who he refers to in the next few chapters. And it's like, he really wants to emphasise, and so Jesus' hearers could get this parable right up front. Rich landowners, vineyards, all those things, yep, he gets that. And so a day officially starts at sunset, and you, know, you, you see this, you know, 6am, the night before we come in, 6am, third hour between 8 and 9, this just rolls on in the day. 12-hour work days would have been common. Go to bed when the sun goes down, and get up when the sun comes up. And the story is simple because the landowner finds extra workers, so... The point is, we, we don't want to run on empty. And we don't want to run on empty. And how you run on empty is you compare your life with others. And as soon as you start comparing life with others, you are robbed of joy. You are, do not get robbed of joy by looking at what others have and you don't have. Don't run that emptiness in your life. Don't become a church in the future where you've forgotten about grace. You've forgotten about how valuable that is. And so let's look at this story. Scene one, the workers are hired for the kingdom of heaven. So there it is again. He's like a landowner who went out early in the morning to his hire workers for his harvest. He agreed to pay them a denarius. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into the vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon, about three in the afternoon, and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, so the day's nearly done, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing, long, doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. You know, I, I just love the way this parable works because it's about the kingdom of heaven. It's about a different priority, about different values about the things that shape kingdom life and shape our life as we live it under the king. Uh, yes, we notice instantly the workers are hired at different times, different hours, early in the morning, third hour, sixth and ninth hour. Uh, and notice the description of the wages that were offered. 
Only once did Jesus actually say, I'll pay you a denarius. And who did he say that to? The first workers. You know, this language about, look, don't worry, I'll do what's right. That's a lot of trust, isn't it? The workers who came at the last hour, he made no commitment to pay them anything, to be truthful, if you read the story. Just, you also go and work in my vineyard. Who knows what they were thinking at that point in time? And a denarius is probably just enough to feed a family for one day. Common wage way back then. And this, you know, whatever is right. So that's the first scene. Second scene, the workers are paid, verses 8 to 10. Uh, when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Captures what's already been said in chapter 19, verse 30. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, whoo, They expected to receive more. But each one of them received a denarius. Hmm. And you're right now thinking, yeah, I know how I'd feel at that point. Because you're watching others. You're watching how they're getting paid. And you're thinking, wow, (laughs) they've got a denarius for one hour. (laughs) You beauty. Wait till I get paid. Clearly. It goes without saying, I'm going to get more. Uh, and that's very dangerous. And Jesus wants to emphasize what, how the kingdom works. And I want to say to you, this language about in verse 10, they expected to receive more. One of the top three killers in relationships, I believe, is the issue of expectations on others. Expressed or worse still, unexpressed. And many of us live lives in this world relationally that we don't express what we really expect from others. But we just in our hearts think, well, this will happen, that will happen. That just kills relationships. I wonder what expectations you have with a new leader. Can I say that? Of course I can. I just did. What expectations are you going to have of those who come back to church in months? Expectations of those who don't come back to church in months. What expectations do you have on the team about how we'll do church in the next few months? There's a lot of expectations in that, isn't there? So you've got to be aware of that in this life. Notice, actually, the workers are all paid the same wage. No one got more than a denarius, no matter how many hours they worked. So you'll have to wrestle with that in terms of the reward system. There is a reward, but you're getting the same. And it's really hard to imagine how are those workers feeling who came in late, getting a painted denarius, like, wow. How are those workers feeling who've worked all day thinking about others? They expected more. It's funny in, uh, uh, I don't know whether you also love the movie Goodwill Hunting. That's probably in the top ten for me, movie-wise. Uh, and a few years ago, Matt Damon is being interviewed on a show, the Graham Norton Show, I don't know whether you watch that show or not. However, I find some things fascinating. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck got the Oscar for that movie when they were very young men, as in in their early 20s. And Matt, in an emotional moment in the show, uh, being interviewed, uh, Graham Norton asked him about how, what was it like. And he said, actually, he just went home and looked at the Oscar. And he said he found it fascinating that men or women would work their whole life waiting to get that and may not get it till they're 70 or 80. 
And he made the comment, it'd be like you've wasted your life just to get this gold statue. And we can get caught up in wanting stuff and, and being annoyed that others are getting it. And, and just like those in this, in this story. So what do the workers do? Verse 11 and 12. Well, they complain. Those hired earlier are actually accusing the landowner of having been unfair because in their minds they deserved more. How the heck can you give them the same as I've received when we, I, have worked so hard? Uh, it's like they were being little children. Verse 11, when they received it, they began to <laughs> grumble. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't ever grumble. Can I say that? In my twilight years, don't be someone who grumbles about what you get or don't get in this life. Because as soon as you grumble, you've already turned your mind towards the fact that I deserve something. I deserve more. Don't grumble, young people. Don't grumble against your parents. Aren't your parents awesome? All right, okay. Maybe aren't some of your parents awesome? Maybe one parent here is awesome. We can sort of do a Monty Python and get right down to it. They grumbled against the landowner. Those who hired last only one hour, they said, and you, and here's the kicker, you have what? You've dared to make them equal to us who've borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Wow, when expectations aren't met. You know, one guy said, we worry about justice, but too often we dress up as justice what is in reality jealousy. What's justice? I've got it on the screen for you. What's justice? When you get what you deserve. What do you really think you and I deserve from God in our sinful state? We deserve condemnation. We deserve separation. We deserve to be thrown into the eternal fires of hell. Full stop, done. What's mercy? When you don't get what you deserve. When you don't get what you deserve. And what's grace? When you get what you don't deserve and that's what we've received grace you know what is it you want in this life do you want justice depends what's going on doesn't it do you want mercy to be shown if you look at the end of matthew 20 of course two blind men call out to jesus you know help us see others could you be quiet and of course jesus demonstrated mercy and compassion they could now see you know, those who laboured all day complain. And yet the issue is the landowner, i.e. God, in case you're wondering, is very generous. He wants those who came last to be able to care for their family. To, to you know, to be generous. Sometimes every time I, well, every time I read Matthew 20, I often jump to Luke 15. The story of the prodigal son, and in particular, I jumped to the son who stayed home. Remember what he said, Luke 15, verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you hmm, never gave me even a young goat. And when this young son of yours comes back, this wayward son, this son who spent everything, comes back, you throw up. Talk about unhappy. These workers are unhappy. 
So scene four, Jesus corrects the workers, verse 13. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you. Friend, friend, isn't it nice how, he, how the landowner and how Jesus tells this story, friend? They're criticising him absolutely badly, and yet he uses that nice word, friend. Didn't you agree to work for Donaris? Great question, isn't it? Didn't you agree and you received what you agreed to? You know the answer, isn't it? Yes. Take your pay and go, I want to give this one who I hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my money, or are you envious because I'm generous? Uh, he reminds them that indeed he has acted justly, the landowner. He's paid them what he said he would. He's not cheated them out of anything. This unmerited grace, and I want to do what I want to do with what I have. Can't, isn't that right to do that? You've got to wrestle with that yourself, as in the landowner would say, yes. God would say, yes, it's my grace. It's undeserved. I can do this. And the parable of grace challenges our view in how we live in this life. And how you live in the future life. You don't, don't be surprised, for example, that we have, you know, what a year it's been. Thank you for your prayers, Peter. What a year it's been. I have no doubts those who've served the church in all sorts of capacities might be thinking when we get back, clearly, where's Greg? Clearly I'll be able to restore, I'll be restored to what I used to do. And they'll sit there thinking, who's that young whippersnapper up there leading worship or playing in that? Why am I not there? I deserve more. And the longer you hang around church, ooh, that can be a real issue. I deserve, I deserve to be recognised. Won't it be great when I retire? And your response is, oh, you're so gracious. I'll become a nobody. I'll pretend I'm a somebody at the moment. Isn't it great? The kingdom of God is full of nobodies who God loves profoundly the last ones, the ones who serve quietly, the ones who don't seek to be honoured in the halls of fame. You know, don't I have the right? Grace operates differently. It really does. You know, and it's funny because if you jump back to Matthew 19 again, that rich young ruler, even acknowledging that Jesus is good, he acknowledges that he's good. You know, Don Carson said this, These rhetorical questions show that God's great gifts, simply because they are God's, are distributed not because they are earned, but because he is gracious. Because he's gracious. And so we're called to run our life on faith, which is the whole issue. So the last, verse 16, the last to be first and first to be last. It's one of those ways to think it just turns things upside down. Do you realise in the kingdom of God, you can have a saved soul and serve the king powerfully? You can have a saved soul and waste your life as well by not serving the king, by getting caught up in things in this world. And that's not running on faith. That's not running the way the king wants us to run, this church now or in the future. And so finally, I want to encourage you to run with grace. To run with grace, uh, you know, don't, don't run blind. Understand what's going on around you. Don't run on empty. Don't compare yourself with others. Please don't do that. Can I? Please don't do that. No matter what they have, no matter where they live, no matter how they uh, engage with that, it, it doesn't matter. Keep your eyes focused on the king and serve him. 
You know, don't run empty, run with faith and run with grace. I love this poem I heard the other week. Is your place a small place? Tend it with care. He placed you there. Is your place a large place? Tend it with care. He placed you there. Whatever your place, he set you there. Your place is not yours alone, but his who placed you there. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, understand God has placed you there. Run your race well in that moment. Tend it with care. Be gracious to others around you. Be mindful of that. Um, you know how much God has given you. Working in the kingdom, being part of the kingdom, brings profound change. Understand an unthankful heart will always question God's wisdom and God's fairness and God's grace and God's mercy. And others will want to shout you down. Others will nudge you and say, well, look what he got, look what she got. Don't, that grace doesn't operate like that. Don't waste your life. Let me invite the band up. As the band comes up, remember... Being part of the kingdom community, it's different. It always has been, it always will be. Uh, I'm guessing you know I like music. Just I'm guessing you do. In fact, can I just say, thank you, Meg. I found the humming bit okay. I'm su surprised me how when I go to shopping centres, and I love sitting in shopping centres and watching people, if, and especially at Christmas time, uh, you hear the carols at Christmas time. But often I realised I actually hum along with them. I don't sing publicly, you know, that's a bit too embarrassing. But humming was okay. I love music. Uh, over 50 years ago, a, a singer called Sam Cooke, for those who love music, you might know. Sam Cooke, uh, he was shot three times trying to bring change for the African-American. He wrote a song called Change Is Gonna Come. Change is gonna come in our life. Change is gonna come in our church. Sam Cooke wrote that song in response, can you believe in the 60s, to, I know you know this, to Bob Dylan's song, Blowing in the Wind. And the line in Dylan's song that Sam Cooke loved was this one, how many times can a man turn his head and pretend he just doesn't see? When it comes to grace, what is it you don't see? What is it you hold on to? What is it you find in yourself? Are you, are you living a life of unmet expectations? Are you working hard thinking, why is there no watch in the post for me? Are you thinking it's not fair? Don't do that. Live your life now and in the future, and especially as our brothers and sisters return and gather again, live your life with a richness of generous heart to others so that they know your life has been transformed and that you extend grace to others like God has extended grace to you. May that always be a marker for this church as we rejoice in God's amazing grace.